This episode of the Internal Comms Podcast is brought to you by the ABIC Health Check. This is a brand new free online tool for evaluating your internal comms activities. Now you've probably seen, you've probably used these online diagnostic tools before. Let's be honest, they can be a little lightweight, rather rudimentary, not always worth the effort of completing. We wanted the ABIC Health Check to be genuinely useful. So we designed it to be thorough. How does it work? The tool takes you through a series of questions in six categories. Insight and understanding, strategy and planning, channels, content, measurement, and professional development. Now, my advice is don't rush through these questions. Make time to sit down with a drink of your choice and work through your answers. You'll need a good 15 minutes. At the end, once you've entered your details, your bespoke report will land automatically in your inbox. This will give you an assessment of where you are today in terms of your internal comms activities. Plus, the report will be packed with insight, advice, and practical hints and tips for what to do next, whether you're ahead of the game or just starting out. So, what are you waiting for? Head over to abcom.co.uk forward slash health. Get a free, fresh expert assessment of your work and take your internal comms to the next level. That website address again, abcom.co.uk forward slash health. Hello and welcome to the Internal Comms Podcast with me, Katie McCauley. The aim of this show is to inform, inspire and generally energise the internal comms profession, all in an effort to improve the way organisations communicate with their people. My guest this week is Maliha Akil, a senior experienced international comms practitioner. Maliha is Director of Global Communications and Digital Channels at Fix Network World, which is a global leader in the automotive aftermarket services sector. The company has 2,000 sites around the world offering collision glass and mechanical repair facilities. And Maliha leads multi-channel integrated comms programs for the organisation. She was previously at the accounting firm EY, where she was assistant director for brand marketing and communications. Now, Malia and I first met through the International Association of Business Communicators, as we both sit on its international executive board. But it was actually Malia's presentation at this year's IABC World Conference that prompted me to invite her on the show. She shared her advice for how we can create purpose-driven content, not from a theoretical point of view, but clearly from the perspective of someone who does this in her day-to-day role. So creating purposeful content is our starting point. But as ever in this show, we go into so much more. We discuss the key to being successful in a global comms role 
We talk about the expectations of Generation Z or Z, if you prefer, the next cohort to enter our workforce. We talk about Malia's plans to advance our understanding of corporate purpose by undertaking a doctorate, no less, in how organisations can activate and communicate the tangible impact of purpose on their balance sheets. And towards the end of our conversation, listen out for easily the most impressively intentional approach to professional development I have ever heard. So without further ado, I bring you Malia Akil. So, Maliha, thank you so much for appearing on the Internal Comms podcast. It's lovely to have you here. Thank you, Katie. Thank you for having me. So, at this year's IABC World Conference, you gave an excellent presentation entitled Brand Reimagined, the DNA of Purpose-Driven Content. And I enjoyed your presentation so much that I just had to have you on the show to talk about it. First of all, that word, purpose, it seems almost ubiquitous these days. We're just hearing it everywhere. And I always think with a word that gets used a lot, there's more opportunity for us to mean different things, each of us when we're using it. I think that about authenticity is another word. So let's start with a definition. What does purpose mean to you? And I suppose the second part of that question is what's driving your interest in purpose? For me, purpose is the reason why a brand exists beyond making money. And and I think often I've seen purpose being used to talk about the mission and vision, but it's not actually that. It's because the mission and vision are often tied to what the business model is, where the company hopes to be. I think purpose is one of those intangibles it's often hard to define for every company unless they know it really well in terms yeah. of here's why we were created in the first place and the impact that we hope to make in society. That I think to me is where purpose really comes in because if there isn't an impact to society, then you're not really a purpose-driven brand. Yeah. It's that higher goal, I suppose, your reason for existing beyond making money and keeping shareholders happy. Yeah. Yeah. And what sort of drove you to talk about this at the World Conference? Are you just seeing this creep into your work more and more as a communicator? Maybe over the last 10 years, I started working on uh, developing a lot of different brands Um, I worked on the brand task force for the IAVC brand as well, including one uh, one that I did in my day job at the Institute of Corporate Directors. And in the conversations that we were having with stakeholders, it kept coming back to why does someone want to belong to the ICD or IAVC? And we found like those conversations were not about the value of specific benefits that you get for an association they were coming back to what people were looking to feel, to achieve. And it came down to that stakeholder experience. And that started kind of got me thinking, and I'm a very curious person. So when people start talking, I'm automatically going to Google to look look things up. I think at, at that point is when I started reading a lot about purpose in different magazines, online journals, 
there was a seminal work that was published in the Harvard Business Review many years ago, which at that point was the first time that someone was started talking about that idea of the purpose of an organization. And the more I read about it, the more I saw the connection to the work that we do as communication professionals, which is about finding ways to tell the organization's story. And often that story isn't a press release about an acquisition or about the work the company did. The story is actually about how the company is making an impact to society through the work that it's doing. And I think the more I, I read about it and the more I read case studies about companies that have done it well, the more I started to see that there's actually something untapped there in terms of what organizations, majority of them could focus on, because for the most part, purpose has been limited to specific companies that have stuck to their core in terms of why they were created. And that's really, for me, everything always starts with it, this curiosity of, huh, I wonder what that is, or I wonder what if, and then I kind of go down a rabbit hole from there. Curiosity <laughs> drives so much of what we do, just <laughs> sparks interest and new learning. So I completely understand where you're coming from in that respect. With respect to the World Conference presentation, I've been doing a lot of work in thought leadership and content. That's always been my area of expertise. And so when I started thinking about the content that gets really successful in terms of helping the business achieve its objectives and the content that gets the most reads and, and gets people talking is the content that is anchored in the organization's purpose. And there's often a lot of really bad thought leadership out there. Sales material disguised as thought leadership with communication getting more and more involved in the content creation part of it. I thought it was really important for professionals to, to start to think about how they can elevate their organization's content journey. Yeah, absolutely. So create richer, more meaningful content that aligns to the rationale why your organization exists. And it's noisy out there, presumably. So, you know, in all of our worlds, for all of our stakeholders, so quality will out at the end of the day to get noticed, I guess. So you set out the four A's, four component parts, if you like, of purpose-driven content or a purpose-driven brand. Can you tell us about your four A's and how they impact our work as comms professionals? Sure. So the four A's are accountability, authenticity, action, and advocacy. And for the way that I see it from a comms prof professional, you have a role to play in each of those areas. So accountability is very much about those metrics. It's about demonstrating impact. There's often examples of, of brands like Tom's, the, the shoe company, where their customers are ones that really believe in the values of that company and they target themselves to, to those consumers as well. So accountability is very much about understanding the values of your customers, your employees, and then being able to show through, through hard metrics, whether that's corporate citizenship initiatives, maybe it's the employee volunteer hours, if those are part of the values that you espouse. And being able to show that so that not only are you reporting back to your uh, stakeholders about what you're doing, but you're also keeping yourself accountable to, to ensure that you actually meet the metrics that you've outlined and are able to deliver on what your stakeholders are expecting. And I think for the comms professionals, 
this is a huge part of that storytelling for them to be able to to communicate what the company is doing, but also contribute to how the company could be leveraging their corporate citizenship in a way maybe they haven't done before in order to, mm. to be accountable. The other is authenticity. So with authenticity, this is very much about your brand voice. It's about, again, those values and making sure that everything you say and do is aligned to the values that you are known for. And you're not simply taking part in a conversation because it's the popular thing to do, but rather you're taking part in conversations that align to the values of your brand. And you can see like here as well, because it is about the brand voice and it is about the conversations that are happening, that is core to the role that communication professionals play for an organization, whether you're in, in an internal role or part of the agency. The, the, the third A, which is action, this is, I think, more tactical in terms of that storytelling, blogs, articles, podcasts, creating campaigns that tell the brand story, making sure the brand story is cohesive across all of the different touch points that you have along your customer journey. And so this one gets into more the tactics where the others are a little bit more on the strategic side of things. And the final is advocacy, which as it sounds, it's about making advocates of, of your customers so that they are the ones that are talking about your brand and your brand values to others who share their values with them. And I think if you do the first three well, the advocacy is actually almost a, a, an impact of those. Yes. It's something that gets delivered. And sometimes you don't even have to actively work on it because if you've done the other three things well, this just ends up being that result. But when you do have great brand advocates, it, it does make the job of the comms professional easier because then you're able to leverage a lot of what your stakeholders or your advocates are saying about you to help make those connections to the accountability piece. To say, you know what? Yes, we are reporting on data, but here's what our advocates are also seeing. And they're almost mm. validating the accountability that you focused on to say this brand actually delivers on, on what they said they would. And also, I guess, internal brand advocacy as well. So yes. there's a lot of research, I think, that shows we had Keith Lewis on the show, who uh, manages social media for Zurich Financial Services, that's saying that the content that's posted from employees is like 10 times more effective than yes. corporately posted content on LinkedIn, for example. Yeah. So people love stories from people. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's, that's what's, what it's telling us. Where I'm currently working, Fix Network World, we launched our employee advocacy program earlier this year. And we've seen that uptake as well. And we've seen people actually getting interested in the company. And we're starting to see an impact on our employer brand as a result because when I remember when I joined Fix Network, we didn't have a website. Um, I was researching what, you know, do I want to work here? And I couldn't find anything. And I think for me, that was part of the challenge. If nothing exists, you can create it. Yes. And, and I was, you know, really pleased that within a year of joining the company, I could launch an, an employee advocacy program that now actually has contributed to our employer brand, but is also contributing to the fact our employees are sharing all of the great things that have been happening in the network. And we're starting to show them that, you know, we're, we're a lot bigger than people think we are. 
and we're only able to do that by using the power of our employees and their networks. Just out of interest, do you give your employees toolkits, guidelines, or do you just give them motivation and inspiration to get on with it? Or is it a combination of both? It's a combination. So, so for us, part of it had to do with getting the right platform. So we've been investing heavily in marketing technologies and communication technologies, both for reaching our customers, but also helping our employees. So with the platform, you know, part of that was education. It was very much about why you should be sharing content. And it was about the fact that it could help them build their personal brand. And for some employees, you know, that wasn't a motivation. They don't want to build their personal brand. They're happy not having a presence. But there are people out there in our company who have very customer-facing roles. They're dealing with insurance companies. They're dealing with fleet companies. They're dealing with a lot of different stakeholders that when they go into a meeting, they want to know what does this uh, VP or this director, what do they do? What does the company do? And they found that that was a real gap for them. And ever since I joined the company, I remember every conversation I had with a senior executive, it was nobody knows who we are. And Mm -hmm. I don't really know what I'm supposed to say about ourselves. And when you go on social media, people can't find anything that we're doing except for one or two brands. And the other thing that I heard from employees was, we don't actually know what's going on inside the organization. And we tried emails. We found they were not effective. I think only 45% of people were opening their emails. And we said, okay, if people aren't opening their emails, why is that? And it's because a large majority of our workforce are actually in the field. They're not at their desk, even though they all have smartphones and they could access email um, on their mobile. They're just on the road and it's not a priority for them. And so we started looking at what were the different solutions out there, looked at apps, and we were implementing um, a social media management tool. And part of the tool, they had another product, which was an employee advocacy one. So when we started talking with them, I automatically I started thinking, yeah, I could do employee advocacy, but this might actually help my internal comms problem. Because if it's a really easy to use app, and if and people do use apps, I think it's it's proven worldwide that apps are popular <laughs> based on the number of downloads. Then I thought, you know what? I think this is worth experimenting. And our CEO is very much an entrepreneur. He encourages experimentation. He always says to me, if it doesn't work, that's okay. At least you tried it and you move on to the next thing. And so when I spoke to him about it, I said, you know, it's not it's an incremental spend on top of what we're getting. But I said, I think it will be worth it because even if we don't have everyone adopting it right away, we still have at least a year to get most people on the platform and and figure out, you know, how we're going to use it well. And and he said, go ahead. And we went with it. And, you know, we saw almost like 70 percent adoption within the first three months, which is very rare for employee apps because often it takes you a year to get anywhere close to that. But we found that we actually had to educate people about how this app will help them. Um, we showed them that if they were desk workers, they could use it on their desktop. They don't have to you have the mobile app. So they had options. And there was a weekly digest that goes out through the app with all the news that they missed. 
So if you have people that don't feel that it is core to their role to know about the content and share it, at least on a weekly basis, they get one wrap-up email, which has everything that they missed during the week. And that is enough to keep them informed. But on Mm. the sales side, people that really want to show their brand on LinkedIn and other channels, all of a sudden they were like, hey, this is great. Like I'm sharing all of this industry news. It wasn't always just news about us. It was also industry news. So they could help show that they had an active presence within the industry and knew what was going on. And so we started to see that the ones that were the early adopters were definitely the salespeople because they were the ones that desperately needed something like that. But as they started sharing, a lot of their team members got involved as well. And it got to the point where everyone was like, hey, I saw like so-and-so shared this piece. I'm going to share something even more. And it almost became a little bit competitive among them. But, you know, from our perspective, I didn't want, want it to be something that I said, you know, you have to use. We organized training calls. We created um, a a small course for as part of our learning management system. And every conversation I had with people, like anytime someone would be like, hey, I need to send out an email to all employees. I would be like, well, we don't actually send uh, emails anymore, but rather we use our, our platform Bamboo to post the news. And I said, we'll still be able to pull metrics to see who saw it. And if it's, if it's super critical, we can also do the broadcast through Bamboo so that it does go out to their emails. But the information itself resides in Bamboo for people who are using it most actively. And so every conversation has been about driving people to use that platform and showing them that that is the only way we communicate with employees because that's how our employees wanted to be communicated to. I I think people often do forget that all of these platforms or channels are not for us as the communication and marketing professionals or even the executives at times. These platforms are for our end stakeholders, whether they're customers, employees, whoever they are. And at the end of the day, it's about what they want and how they want to engage with your brand. And if you're willing to engage with them in in the way they want to be engaged to, then I think you you have the makings of a successful brand. I'm guessing there's probably going to be a few listeners that are at the point of looking across the vast array of employee apps that are on the marketplace at the moment and thinking, where do I start? You know, what's the right one? Did you have any sort of critical success factors, critical features or benefits that you were looking for that made you go for Bamboo? We don't need to promote that one particularly. It was the right one for you, but I'm just curious about the process you went through. For us, it's all about efficiencies. I don't want my team to have to go to three different places to post content. So for us, when we found out that this one existed with the management platform we were already getting and that we would be able to push content out through that platform to Bamboo. To me, that's three steps saved for for my team. Ultimately, for me, all of these technologies that we're investing in, it's all about efficiency. Because if we're spending too much time doing things that are taking away from the value add tasks that we could be doing, then that's not a good use of time. So for me, that was one of the critical things is I knew that eventually I would get one but it wasn't the the primary thought in my mind when we, we were evaluating social media platforms. 
But it's just one of those things when you hear about it and you think, huh, hey, I can do this with one click. And I thought, yeah, like, you know, if we can do it with one click and my team doesn't have to have to go to three different places to update the same content, that's that's the platform we're going to go with. And I will say it's it's true for every platform we, we evaluate. We look at efficiency first, cost second, because you may get a cheaper platform, um, mm. but if it's not efficient and you're having to spend more time on it, then you kind of have lost the the cost effectiveness of that. So I think that was key. The other is always the what kind of metrics can we track? Ah. Uh, you know, like often platforms will will measure maybe specific things, but not give you deep data about the consumer behavior that's taking place on their on their platform. And I will say, I don't think any platform is perfect when it comes mm. to the kind of data and analytics they provide you. I think you always have to have some kind of workaround. To, yes. to analyze it and make it sense for you. I, I like the metrics that, that this platform was providing to us. And it matched the ones that I felt were right for where we are as an organization and the journey that we're on, because we're still very early in our digital journey. We, we're, not, we're not there at the end where we're like, hey, we know exactly what data we need to be collecting. We were, at, we were very much at the start where we were like, if we can get information about how our employees are using this app. If we know what stories are being read, which ones are being shared, what the reach is, if we can get a lot of this information that will help us make informed decisions about the kind of content that we need to be promoting on this app, but also the kind of content we need to be creating as an organization, then, then that, those metrics for now are good enough for us. I think as we go further down this journey, that will change, I'm sure, because the more deep data we get, the more we'll want to know, is there something else we can get? I always think like with technology, it's constantly changing. And I think the good thing about any of the technologies uh, that you work with is often the providers are willing to listen to their customers and get feedback on how they can improve. And they always share their road, uh, product roadmap with you. Yes. So I think when you're evaluating, a huge part of that discussion has to be the product roadmap. And looking at the product roadmap to see how many, how many of your future needs will be met and by what time. And if you're willing to wait for that timeline, then I think that becomes part of how you evaluate. Because if the timeline is, we're only going to be able to meet this need of yours in five years, and you're at that stage where you're like, well, I really need this, really need to meet this need by next year. Then you automatically know that's not a platform that you want to use because their timeline and how much they're investing in their platform does not align with the the, the transformational journey that your organization is, is on. Mm. So I think those are some of the, the key things that, that we look at. And, um, you know, I, I, always, I always work with our procurement team. And I, I've learned a lot from them in terms of how to evaluate and the questions to ask. I think like all communication professionals, I thought I knew everything going in. <laughs> and then I learned that there was a lot I did not know, particularly when it comes to contracts and yes. doing the first pass at contract before they even go to procurement. So, you know, there were, there were things that they taught me about what to look for, what to ask. And, and, and I think 
I've certainly learned that anything in an organization, it has to be a partnership with another department. Because if comms or marketing try to do everything themselves, they inevitably will miss out on things that could have brought value to the organization because they don't always have a complete understanding of every single thing that's happening in an organization. And not that we're expected to know everything that goes on, but I think if you don't have those key partnerships, you miss out and you actually end up showing the executives that you are not a dot connector. And you're not thinking about the organization, but rather you're just thinking about your particular need. So in in my role in particular, I work a lot with our procurement team. I work with IT. I work with HR. um, I work with our senior executives too. But without these other three departments, I don't think I, I would be able to do what I do because they actually help advocate for me. To, to say, yes, she's done all the evaluations. She's asked the right questions. She has made you a recommendation on the best platform that you could be investing in. And, and when all of those things happen, you know, when we get to the end, there isn't mm-hmm. any of that, no, I'm not going to sign this contract. It's, okay, you've done your due diligence, you've done your checks, and off you go, and here's your budget. Great advice there. Thank you. You've already mentioned TOMS in terms of a purpose-driven organization. Are there any other organizations that are particular standouts for you when it comes to those that really do properly define, share and live by their purpose? Yeah, this one um, is an organization that I worked for. So I have a lot of knowledge and that's EY. I worked for them for several years and One of the reasons why I wanted to work for them was because of the fact that they are so purpose-driven. I remember I was at the stage in my life where I was looking at what's my next opportunity, what's the next challenge that I want. And I was looking at all of the big four consulting firms and they stood out for me because of their purpose. And what was really coincidental is that my job there was to do thought leadership. And Ah. a huge part of how they bring their purpose to life is through thought leadership. So I I, I got a chance to actually be in in the middle of all of that, to be able to see, you know, when you work with different stakeholders inside the organization about creating content, how do you guide those conversations so that it comes back to the purpose? How do you make sure that the big thought leadership programs aren't being done because somebody had an idea? But rather, it went through this entire vetting process before the work began to say, okay, how does this align to our purpose to build a better working world? How does it actually is is core to some of the key principles behind that, which is about efficient and trusted capital markets? How does it help the stakeholders? And for an accounting firm, you know, they're in such a heavily regulated industry that if you get it wrong, there is potential of fines of millions of dollars from regulators from any part of the world where you're operating, depending on how strict the regulators are. So the cost of getting it wrong for them is very high, which is why when they do their content, purpose is so important because if it doesn't align to their purpose, they know that's not the right thing to do. And they know that it could get them into trouble. And that's not to say that every content is is great and, you know, it's always purpose driven because sometimes you just need those tactical contents that are at different stages of the client journey. 
But I would say as, as part of that client journey, when we're at the awareness stage, every single piece of content is purpose-driven. As you go further down that client journey into preference, consideration, it starts to become a little bit more tactical in terms of being super relevant to what that individual client need is. But if you think about it, if you started from that perspective of being purpose-driven at the awareness stage, what you're really doing is almost like layering it back as you go down that client journey, To but you're still staying true to that purpose. It's just maybe not as visible and evident as it would be when it's um, about awareness. So for me, that is one that I, I look at. And you know, even though I don't work there anymore, I still go to their website to read their content because I'm, I'm really interested in a lot of the points of view that they share about the world as it could exist from a work perspective, whether it's the future of work or it's different consumers and what do those consumer habits and behaviors look like. I'm, I'm super fascinated and I think it feeds into that curiosity that I have about the world around me. And I know when I go there, I will find things that make me think. And you know, if you think about it, the only way to build a better working world is to get people thinking and to make them curious about the world around them. So I think in that respect, they do their job really well. Links in the show notes, guys, that you can uh, explore all this content yourself. So I believe you are hoping to embark on a doctorate in corporate purpose, mm -hmm. specifically how purpose can create tangible value on the balance sheet. This sounds absolutely fascinating, ever so slightly daunting to me at the same time. I'd love to know more about this. What kind of research do you hope to be undertaking? And, and what is it at the end of the day that you hope to discover? Yeah, so I think with this one, I almost see like if, if it comes together, being that part of this journey I've been on about my curiosity about purpose. And the more I read about it, the more I realized that, you know, you can talk about purpose, but it feels a bit too theoretical at times. And when you're dealing with shareholders, my, my background is financial communication. So I dealt a lot with shareholders. I dealt a lot with different types of investors. For them, it is about what is the earnings per share? What does your, your net loss and, you know, what is EBITDA? All of those things. Those are the kinds of metrics that they look at to evaluate companies. And that's been the case for for a really long time, I would say almost hundreds of years, ever since there Absolutely. have been shareholders. But it's only in the last, I think, almost like three to five years where even shareholders have started to look at companies to say, well, that's all well and good, but what does your five-year journey look like? What does your 10-year journey look like? And part of it was um, something that I worked on when I was at the ICD, which was an, an initiative called Long-Term Capitalism. It was something that was started by a lot of the big in institutional investors there that are investing in global assets. And part of that was to show that capitalism can be sustainable. It's not only about making money, but it's also about making contributions to society because companies recognize that they have a role to play. And the institutional investors started to look at their portfolios and started to realize that while the portfolios were doing well financially, their reputation was taking a hit. And the reputation of companies, when those get impacted, it does have an impact on the portfolio value. 
because if the if the the stock prices start going down, if the the sales are down, all of that has a financial impact on the company. And so a lot of these institutional investors started looking at reputation, and reputation risk almost like 10 years ago was one of those buzzwords where everyone was talking about reputation risk and the value of reputation risk. And what I started to realize when I did my my research, because part of the doctorate program is you have to prepare your statement of uh, intent for research, and you have to do quite a lot of research ahead of time to show them why you want to invest four years of your life if you're looking at one topic. Um, And so part of the research that I, I did, I realized that the central problem was companies talk about their purpose but no one is actually able to put a value on it to say that if we did purpose, here is the actual dollar value that you can assign to it. If you think about reputation, on the in financial statements, there's always something called goodwill. Yes. There is a dollar value for goodwill. And essentially, the goodwill came out of the reputation risk um, discussions. So for me, that kind of got me thinking about, can we have a dollar value for purpose? If we do have a dollar value for purpose, can we communicate that to, to to the investor community, to different stakeholders to show, you know what, like, here is the tangible impact that purpose is having on our actual business. And there's so many different components to that. And I'm, I'm sure I will learn there's other components that I don't even know about. But definitely things like the supply chain, making sure that you're sourcing from sustainable sources that your supply chain in different countries is actually being respectful of local laws, but also human rights concerns. So all of those things, when you start to think about your supply chain, your supply chain as a company is the thing that gets measured. And if you can start to embed your purpose in those things and then be able to measure it, you will start to see that impact on the balance sheet. And one of the the feedback that I got on my on my proposal was, to really think about the communication aspect of it more because in companies like EY with um, something called Project Epic is has been doing a lot of work on the accounting side of things to, to create measures for long-term value, which wow. can be shown in the financial statements. And so the recommendation from the university was Take some of the work that's already being done on the metric side, but now start to think about how you layer on communication as part of that. Because they said that if if you if they said you're not an accountant, so you won't be able to do that work. And I said, no, I, I wasn't expecting to create accounting standards for purpose. But I said, I, I know that there is work that's been done as pro- part of Project Epic to, to create these tangible metrics. But I said, the challenge is, Nobody actually knows what those are, and they don't actually mm. know how they connect back to the broader business. And so I said that, well, that's actually a communication problem. <laughs> you know, silly me as a communication professional, I didn't think it was a communication problem because to me, I was like, that's a business problem. It's a management problem. But in speaking to the program advisors, they were like, no, this is a communication problem. Because if companies actually have all of this information, but it's fragmented, there's no one bringing it all together, they said, wouldn't it make sense for them to actually have a framework that allows them to communicate it? And and so for me, a, a part of that research is about understanding all of the different metrics that exist across an organization, the KPIs, 
that are not always communication KPIs, but they're everything to do with operations, with financials, and to start to bring them all together under one strategic communication framework so that I am able to show that companies that are purpose-driven and activate the purpose across all areas of the organization, um, I'm, I'm able to create a framework that allows them to communicate the impact of that purpose to their employees, to their investors, to the, their customers and other stakeholders. And then by doing that, it will have an impact on their share price if they're a public company, because it creates confidence in the company. It creates confidence that they will be around for a long time because they are not chasing the trends, but rather they have um, a long-term view on their business. And they're putting in place all of these, these um, uh, measures and frameworks that allow them to continue to evolve as a company. And so part of that sustainable capitalism that I talked about earlier was about the fact that capitalism evolves over time, and that's why it's been successful for so long. But you need people to actually push capitalism to evolve. And so the, that entire sustainable capitalism conversation from, I think it was like 10, 12 years ago now, um, there was an initiative that came out, which was the framework for long-term capitalism. And a lot of this I find is almost like purpose has now become at the bookend of that, where they've, there's a lot of work that's been done on the tangibles of financial statements, on supply chains, on operations, on creating KPIs that actually make sense. But now it's about those intangibles like purpose to say, what is that KPI? Like, could we create KPIs that are tied to the purpose? And that every or every department has to have a KPI then that measures them on how they're aligning themselves to the purpose and delivering on that purpose. And so for me, part of the work that I want to do is create all of those, those frameworks that can be embedded into different departments and build on the work that's already been done, but add the layer of communication so that you're able to activate that purpose, but also communicate its impact to the broader community. It's absolutely fascinating stuff. My mind is racing. I mean, part of me is just thinking, my goodness me, this is the holy grail. I mean, th this is what we've been looking for all this time. A number, a number that proves this is what it's worth. This is the value of it. Because intuitively, instinctively, we know the value of being purpose-driven, of standing on the right side of, you know, moral, ethical behaviour. And we also know our consumers and our employees care about this, this, these things yes. so much more. And I guess they're looking for that transparency. Yeah, and I think part of that conversation is about the change in generation that is happening across, not just within organizations, but generally in society. If you look at each subsequent generation, you know, when with millennials, definitely there's differences, whether you're an older millennial or a newer millennial. But ultimately, I think, there is things that are um, common across all of them in terms of the way they want to hold companies to account. But when you look at Generation Z, they are the ones that are not just holding companies to account, but actually becoming activists about doing yes. so. I guess like all of my nieces are Generation Z. And the one of them, she's 12 years old. And when I have conversations with her, it's all about, well, 
why why can't companies focus on climate change? Like how how hard is it for them to do that? And I know instinctually I'm like, yes, climate change is important, but I will admit it's not something I think about on a day-to-day basis. I, I like to think I do my part. But for someone like her and her friend and her classmates, this has almost become this one of those things where they're like, it's not rocket science. You should be able to figure it out. I mean, you have all this money, you're adults, you're in positions of power. And for them, it's like, if you're not going to do it, we will. And yes. there is, I, I think, as, as we think about how the generations um, are, are coming up, the newer generations coming up and the way that their worldview is, has been informed, I think if companies don't catch up, they're going to find that they don't, they're not relevant to the conversations because you're going to have new business models emerging that meet the needs of this, of this new generation. And those will be business models that they create to suit the life and, and the planet that they, that they believe is their right to have. What it basically means at the end of the day is that you might have a perfectly acceptable product or service, but if everything that goes around it is not in some way benefiting society, that ain't going to be enough no. because you need to do more than that. Mm-hmm. Fascinating stuff. Now, you have a global role as the Director of Global Communications and Digital Channels, but I also know you've worked internationally for many years. I was just keen to ask a little bit about this. In terms of any advice you'd give someone who's maybe about to embark on a global role for the first time and is struggling with just the the diversity and the different demands and needs and expectations of an international audience... Any hints and tips? <laughs> I think my my first one is to listen. I think the biggest mistake that people can can make is to go in with ideas without actually understanding the cultural context of the different countries where your company operates. And so part of when what I did when I when I joined Fixed Network, but also what I've done in the other roles I've held during my career is always ask questions and try to understand and listen. And I think that is such an essential skill for any communicator to have. And I think even if you're not in a global role, it's an essential skill to have because our job is to help stakeholders deliver on their business objectives. And if we're not listening to them and listening to what those business objectives are, we can't actually do our job well. And so for me, as part of my onboarding I, I had a lot of calls with a lot of our stakeholders in different countries, and I prepared five questions that I would ask all of them, and it was the same five questions every time. You know, I wanted to know things like, what were some of the challenges that they face in, in their region? Um, you know, what's the kind of support that they're looking for? What does their market share look like? Because if they are in an emerging country, their market share is really small. And so is that a priority for them to help them get gain more market share? If you're in a more mature country, your probably market share is not super essential, but maybe engagement and lack of engagement is a problem to solve. So for me, I kind of went into it, like every single interview, the exact same five questions. And it, I, it that really helped me because when I, I, when I'd asked a question, I would just listen and I took lots of notes I still have all of my notes and I, you know, it, to me, that was such so important in helping me do my job well, because as I started to build my plan for how I would help the company, 
I could say, oh, you know what? So-and-so in Australia said to me that this is not going to work for them. So I can't necessarily mandate that they do this. Or someone in Germany said to me that, you know, in their market, people have a very different motivation for why they would want to join a franchise network. And so if I tell them a message about all of these other things that are not relevant to them, they're going to miss out. But I think the biggest lesson that uh, that I learned was I don't have to always be the one to solve the problem. I have to help my regional teams solve it. And right. often I think when you are in a global role, you forget the fact that there are regional teams out there whose job is to know the market, to be your eyes and ears in the market, and to help bring your messages to life in a way that is relevant and appropriate for the markets in which they operate. Even if you don't have a communication team or a marketing team in that region, you have someone in that region who knows it well and knows it in a way that you never can if you've never actually worked there or lived there. And so part of that listening then kind of translates into socializing and socializing ideas before you launch them, making sure that you have taken into consideration all of the things that could go wrong but all of the ways in which these campaigns or programs need to be adapted by the regions and, and the time that they would need in order to adapt them. Mm. Some of it is the key messages. They might need to adapt it to the market. Some of it is actually things like translation. You know, I can't send anything to Germany to say, you, I need you to communicate this tomorrow. They have to take my English communication. They have to understand it. They have to translate it to German. And they have to make sure that it's appropriate in German for the audience that they're targeting. Mm. And so I have to be respectful of their timelines. I have to make sure that I have understood what else they're working on. And so the earlier you can start working on those things, the more and the more you can socialize the ideas, you'll find that you actually become more effective in a global role if you forget the fact that your job is not to say, I'm going to be in the center and I'm going to push a button and everything goes down there and everyone's going to do what I tell them. That's not a global role. I, it wasn't the global role at EY. It was it's not the global role where I work right now. The role is to listen, is to socialize and is to take that feedback and every single time improve upon your process so that people see that you're not tone deaf. You're not always just doing the same thing every time, but you've learned from what you did the last time so that you don't ask the same questions again, but rather you ask the next series of questions to actually elevate the process even further and you make it better every single time. So I think for me, that, that would be the advice that I would give to people in global roles is that take a step back and listen to the talent around you and give them a chance to, to tell you all the things that you don't know and probably will never be able to know completely because you're not actually living and working in, in those markets. That is such great advice. And I want to come back to something that you said right at the beginning, because I think it's so important. That process that you went through where you decided, what are my five core questions? And I think, and we notice this when we do our acid test audits, asking the same question in almost exactly the same way is fascinating because immediately you start to see where there's alignment, where there's misalignment, where there's gaps. It's just, it's just that alone is a fascinating exercise. Mm -hmm. So no, thank you for that. It's brilliant advice there. Now you've worked across comms disciplines, I know, 
And I'm just interested in how much crossover you see between, say, media, customer, employee, investor relations. I mean, there are some people saying we're all just going to be called communicators at the end of the day. Is that your view? Or do you think there are some unique characteristics of the internal audience that we should always be bearing in mind? There are characteristics. And I think it's more goes back to their motivations. I definitely do see crossover. To me, I've always approached my career as audience first. If I know who my audience is, all the core principles about, you know, the right message, the right place at the right time, they all come together. The message, I think the the, the single core message doesn't change. It's the way you communicate that message that becomes relevant to that audience. But I think you always have to be mindful of the motivations. For employees, they have chosen your company as a place for them to work. And nowadays, I think on average, people stay with a company three to four years, maybe five at the most. But if you think about the fact that even if they leave after five years, if they had a really great experience, they're going to be your advocates for life, right? And they're going to want to keep coming back. And maybe someday they might want to come back to work for your company again, because they realize that they did all the other stuff they wanted to do. And now they want to come back here to do things that maybe are are different from what they did before. And so with employees, I find that while your single core message doesn't change, because that is your key message, the way you communicate it has to be tied to the motivations, but you always have to remember that your employees have choices. And I think especially Mm -hmm. now, they have even more choices of where they want to work, but more importantly, how they want to work. And if you don't recognize that they are in the driver's seat of making the decisions about their careers, they have a lot more choices in terms of the kinds of companies that can better align to their values, maybe better align to the kind of lifestyle they want to live while also being able to earn an income. I I think if you don't recognize that, then you are being tone deaf to what you need to do to be a great employer brand. And I think it's the same for different stakeholders, particularly for public companies. If you don't understand why your investors have chosen to invest in you versus all the other millions of companies out there that they could have chosen to invest in, if you don't understand that and if you don't meet their needs and if you're not communicating the things that are important to them, you will lose those investment dollars. And so I I think for me, that is what, what it comes down to is understanding the motivations of the different audience. And I think there is a difference between audience that have a vested interest in your organization versus ones that don't. I don't think media has a vested interest in your individual organization. Their vested interest is in the story itself and being able to to be accountable to the the readership to make sure that they have done their job to tell as accurate a story as they can with what they know. I think though employees, investors, your end customers, particularly for B2C companies, all of those stakeholders have a vested interest in your Mm. company. They have a vested interest that maybe is a little bit self-centered in terms of what their motivations are and how your company can, uh, can align to the values that you hold. But at the end of the day, they have that vested interest. They have chosen either to give you their time, their money, all of their effort 
they have chosen to give you something. And so I think as a company, you have to think about what are you giving back to them that is important to to what they're looking for. And, and I think that's where often communication professionals can sometimes get things wrong, where they don't they fail to recognize the the stakeholders' motivations and what inspires them, what will be relevant for them. They focus on the message they want to tell or the story they want to tell, and they just focus on that. And I always feel that it's a disservice to your stakeholders who are giving you so much to not think about what they want. Uh, so one of the things that I've often tell my team is, you know, if you were the one searching on Google for something, like what would make you want to click on our website versus somebody else's? Right. Mm. And I always tell them, like, we are stakeholders as well. Like we forget as communication professionals that when a communication goes out, we as the employee also get it. And sometimes because we've worked on it, we kind of ignore it. But if I did not work on it and I am part of the communication team and I receive it, I have to ask myself, how do I feel about this as an employee? Forget about the fact that I, I may have worked on it. But if I was to just have received it, do I feel good about it? Do I feel like I have more questions than I have answers? Do I feel like this is a company that's invested in me the way that I'm investing in them? And, uh, you know, that I, I, I'm I always baffled by the fact that we forget that we're also employees. Yes. We are so focused point. on doing our job that we just forget that. And it's the same as customers. We forget that we are also customers of our own business. Um, we maybe not the complete business and certainly I, I wouldn't be, you know, customer of the accounting function, but maybe I'm a, a customer of one of their customers or something like that. Right. So I, I think if you start to ask yourself, if I'm going to put on my consumer hat and I'm going to be the one consuming those messages and I'm going to be the one that clicks on something, what will motivate me to do it? And if it motivates me, I'm sure it motivates another 10 people. And then another 10 after that. And I think you keep building it from there. But if you remember that you are also an end stakeholder, it makes your job easier because you start to, you you know exactly what messages will work and you know exactly what will not work. And, and then you just, you just do it really well. Yes, really, really good advice. Thank you. Now we met through sitting on the International Executive Board of the International Association of Business Communicators. Gosh, that's a long (laughs) sentence, isn't it? (laughs) The IABC. I'm always interested in asking people what draws them to membership associations. Because I think that for somebody who might be weighing up the pros and cons, thinking of their busy days and their busy life, thinking, is this something I should be doing as well? Why did you get involved? What was your sort of personal motivation for getting involved? Yeah. So I, I got involved with IABC when I moved to Canada from Dubai. And when I moved to Canada, I did not know anyone. Like I, I, I had some family here, but I did not know any professionals. And I remember when I was in Dubai, there was someone that was an IABC member in Australia. And they had, it was, they, he was an instructor that was doing a crisis comm workshop for us. And he'd given examples of of some of his work through IABC and what he'd learned. And there wasn't an IABC chapter in in Dubai at that time. So I kind of just parked it. And when I moved to Canada, I was like, okay, 
how am I going to meet other professionals? Like, how am I going to get a job? I don't even know how people do communications here. Like, I know nothing. And so I went online and I was like, I wonder if there is an IABC chapter in Toronto. And coincidentally, at that point, it was the largest chapter in, in, in the world. Ah. And so I I ended up joining um, pretty much right away because I, I recognized that the only way that I would be able to build my community of, of other professionals was to be part of an association and to actually show up and, and, and take part. Because one of the things that I think I recognized after attending one event was Everyone knew everyone. I didn't really know anybody. And I'm not the best when it comes to networking. I, I'm the first to admit that I, I, I really am bad at it and probably need to learn more. And so I didn't really know how to have a conversation. But a lot of the people there were actually very welcoming. As soon as they found out that I was newly moved to Canada and stuff, like everyone started being super welcoming to me. And I think at looking at part of those conversations, I realized that a lot of people volunteer. Uh, for the association, and it's all volunteer driven. That was something I don't think I I knew when I joined. Um, particularly, I think at the local chapter level, that's that's more true uh, than than maybe at the headquarter level. And so I said, okay. I went to the website for the Toronto chapter. I looked up volunteering. I filled out the form. Someone contacted me pretty much right away, and I I met with that person, and I started volunteering as part of the professional development portfolio. And for me, volunteering, like I wasn't working because I just moved here, and I thought, you know what, like this would be a good chance for me to actually get to know the industry here, to get to meet other people, to actually understand how things are done in Canada, because if I didn't do that, I would just be sitting at home applying for jobs without having any context. And so that was really, for me, the start of my IABC journey. And I found that the more I gave, the more I got back. By volunteering, people got to know me. When I got my first job in Canada, the, the, the board member that I was volunteering for actually gave me a work reference. And that was so important because all of my references were from Dubai. And if you've ever moved to a new country, you find out really quick that all of your old references from another part of the world are not as important as the ones are from that country. And so by volunteering for a couple of years, you know, that helped me build that credibility as well. She knew that I could do the job. She knew that I was responsive. She knew that when she wanted something, I delivered. And so when I said, would you be willing to give a work reference? She said, yeah, I would be happy to do it. And I always thank her for that because I think it's as, as a new immigrant, it's so hard to enter the workforce when you have a lot of these barriers that are, are outside of your control. But I think you can address them by taking steps that are specific to you and relevant to what you want to achieve. And the more I, I found, like, the more I volunteered, the more I got to know people, the more I got interested in it. And I started to see how I could contribute to the organization and how I can help. And so eventually I ended up um, serving on the Toronto Chapter Board. I was president uh, as well. And after that is when I joined the International Executive Board. But by the time I joined the, the board, I think I'd been a volunteer for 10 years. And I had done volunteering at the international level, at the regional level, and it allowed me to really understand the organization 
in a way that I think I would have never done if I had just been a member and had just received information. And I would be like, yeah, I'll engage when I have the time. But I found like sometimes I didn't even have to spend a lot of time on volunteering. Like sometimes it was as much as, yes, I will judge an award. And mm-hmm. that takes, you know, maybe it's a, it's like 10 hours out of my, my day or maybe out of the month because you don't spend all of it at one time. But if I, if all I could give was 10 hours, that was still 10 hours where I got something back. Because if you've ever judged awards, you know that you learn so much by reading other people's work. Like it's literally case study after case study after case study of all the things that maybe you never get a chance to do yourself. So for me, that's really been one of the reasons why I've continued to stay involved is the more I've given, the more I've gotten back. And and I, I see that I, I still have so much more to give. And I think there's a lot of potential. So, you know, any association, it really does run on the back of its members. And I think the more engaged members are in the affairs of the organization and giving feedback, even if you can't volunteer, but you can give feedback to the association on how they can become more relevant to you as a member. I think you've done your job in helping the association become all the things that it can be for future uh, members as well and for future professionals. And I think being passive doesn't help them because if you're passive, it makes it feel like everything is okay. But I think as as we saw with that capitalism example, if capitalism can evolve, so can associations because the world <laughs> is evolving all the time. Um, and you can't stand still. So whatever business model you have, you have to evolve. And the only way you can do that, if it's your, if it's your stakeholders are invested in you and giving feedback and, and volunteering, if that is, that's the model you go for. It's really interesting. Uh, coming back to something you said right at the beginning of that answer, when you were talking about you know, you're not necessarily the one that's kind of first out of the gate, very confidently networking or, or, or literally working the room, as they say. And I was reading, and wouldn't be the Internal Comms podcast if there wasn't a book recommendation at some point. At the moment, I'm reading Build Your Dream Network by J. Ke- Kelly Hoey. And I think by joining a professional association, you are really accelerating the prospects that your networking is going to actually achieve results. You're already in the right company of like-minded people. Exactly. <laughs> it just makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, you will find not everyone is great at networking. So you find the people at the corner of the room and you start networking with them without yes, realizing exactly. it because you're really commiserating with each other. But before <laughs> the end of the night, you realize you were actually networking. It comes in many guises, doesn't it? That's the thing. Now, I can absolutely tell from your contribution to our board meetings that we have every month as treasurer and board secretary, and you've already demonstrated that on this show, that you have a really solid understanding of the mechanics of business and particularly in the financials. I am fascinated by how you gained this understanding. Was it a lot of listening? And were there very specific things that you went out and did, training, books you read, any help? Because I think communicators, it's not their natural milieu, if we say, if we want to say that in the financials. How did you gain that knowledge and understanding? When I was in um, high school, I studied business uh, as my focus. And I was really, really good at accounting. Like I was so good at it that my my teacher was like, you should become an accountant. And I was like, yeah, that's not really my thing. 
Um, and my dad's an investment banker. So when ah. my dad knew I was good at accounting, he started giving me all of these stock lists to review and I had to create a portfolio and and actually track it for him and and show him how my portfolio was performing. So I think I have a bit of a unique experience where I kind of like, uh, I think I've always naturally gravitated towards numbers, even though surprisingly, I'm really bad at math. I cannot do basic math without a calculator, but everything else, uh, I think all that analytical thinking, I, I, I'm really good at that. So I think for me, I kind of started from that where I, I did study it and I had an interest in it because my dad was in the industry. And so I'd been surrounded by financials most of my life. But I, I always knew that I didn't want to work as an investment banker because I didn't find it creative enough for me. I have always seen my personality as being 50% strategic, 50% creative. And so communication is a perfect career for me because you're able to tap both of those skills equally. Um, but I, I think like anything, you also have to then learn and you have to take the time to learn. So for me, I do spend like a lot of time reading up on different articles, like the Financial Times and Wall Street Journal are two of my favorite newspapers. And if I don't understand something that, I re that I'm reading, I will Google it. Investopedia is my favorite website for anything to do with investment because they explain it in a way that's designed for laymen. And so if I don't understand the thing, I'm like, hmm, investopedia.com, <laughs> search for it. So I think like, you know, some things for sure do come naturally to me. I think it's the way I am. I am analytical in the way I think. I'm strategic in the way I think. So those things are natural. and But I think if, if those don't come naturally to you and it's important for you to learn those as part of your role, I think you have to invest the time to learn it. For some people, that could mean doing a course like, you know, finance for non-financial managers or something like that. I, you know, there's courses out there that are designed for people that don't work in finance. But I think if you have to put in the time to learn, and I, even though I didn't want to be an investment banker, I ended up doing financial communications. And when you do financial communications, you do learn a lot by working. And most of my clients were institutional investors and they did acquisitions. So I had to learn their world really quickly. And the only way to learn their world is to ask questions. If I didn't understand yes. something, I just had to be willing to ask them. Like I, I always felt like if I went into the room knowing everything, I, I would lose that opportunity to ask questions. So when we were working on perhaps a new project and I was not super familiar with what they were doing, I would just tell my client and I would just be honest and say, look, I, I know how to do the communication side of this well. I know what messages we could do to reach your investor community, but can you explain to me how an IPO works? Can you yes. explain to me all of the different regulatory factors that we need to be accountable for? Because, you know, I it's it's not my job to necessarily know how to run an IPO, but I do need to understand the basics of it so that I can communicate it well. And I can't understand the basics if I'm not willing to ask the question. So if I go into every conversation pretending I know everything, I will likely not do my job well. So I think you do have to take the time to learn. And I am constantly learning. I, I like to learn generally, like that's that's who I am. Part of that is curiosity. Part of that is just I'm a lifelong learner. And so I, I like learning new things. And so one of the things that I've I've done for several years is 
I create a budget for myself personally every year where I, I say that I'm going to invest X number of dollars in learning about these topics this year. Wow. And I've reached the point where I don't do as much on the communication side because I, I feel very confident that I know things that I need to do from, from a communication perspective. But I started to do a lot more courses on business. So for the last almost like two, three years now, every year I do a course through the Harvard Business School on on different business topics. I did strategy execution this year. Um, a couple of years ago, I'd done disruptive strategy. So I'm, I'm already thinking about what my next one will be because I'm finding that by doing these other courses that are not central to my role, I'm able to learn how my stakeholders work and how they think. So I know how to have conversations with executives in the language that they speak because I'm able to do these courses and I'm able to read these articles and then invest in my own learning to be able to have more strategic conversations. But more importantly, show them that I understand the business of the business. Because if I don't understand the business of our business, how what am I communicating? I can't communicate it because I don't understand how operations links to IT or all of those things, because I didn't take the chance to learn it. So I, I think for me, it, it is partly some of it just comes naturally to me, but the other, I've, I've had to work at it. Uh, I think if I didn't work at it, I probably wouldn't be able to do what I do on the board. And part of being on the board is to also con constantly learn. You know, I've, I've had to constantly learn about different association models what works in different parts of the world versus what doesn't work. And I try to ask myself, could this apply to IABC? Sometimes it can, sometimes it can't. But if you don't know what to, what to ask for, how will I even start the conversation? So I think that's, that's kind of been my secret to success is just continuously learning and, and reading and trying to make sense of things when they don't make sense to me. I love the intentionality of sitting down and saying, I am investing in a very physical sense in my development and what areas am I going to focus on? I think that's, that's really great advice. So in the little time that we have left, if, if you do have the time, I'd love to ask you these quick fire questions, if I may. What would most surprise people about Malia Akil? That I'm a hardcore romantic. Oh, there you go. That came out of the blue, Maliha. I know. <laughs> I believe in soulmates and happy endings. And I, I, I make no apologies for it, but it surprises people who have only ever seen me be analytical where they're like, what? It, I, you can say, I, it's, not, it's rare that I'm lost for words, but you <laughs> caught me on the hop. That's the last thing I expected you to say. Yeah, like I, I just love everything to do do with romance. I, I read romance novels. I write romance novels. So you uh, write them. I write them too. It's it's always been my end goal to to be a published author. And I have so many ideas and stuff. And I've actually started writing again and publishing online, just getting my stories out there. And part of that was that intentionality again of saying, okay, writing is important to me. And I spend my entire life doing corporate but I need to also exercise this other muscle that I have, which is about writing fiction. Are you brave enough to include a link in our show notes? Um, I mean, I can include for my, my Tumblr blog because that's I, I write fan fiction. 
these days. So I can include a link to my Tumblr blog and you guys are welcome to read my fan fiction. And uh, it's all romance, but I, I love it. And I it's love actually, it. Yeah. What do you wish you had known when you first started out in your career? I think I wish I'd known how to prioritize well. I Early on in my career, someone actually did give me that advice and I ignored it. They told oh. me to not take on too much just because, just to show people that I'm, I'm, I'm saying yes. They said, you right. know, you need to pace yourself. And I ignored that advice um, because I thought that, you know, they were just saying it for, to, to maybe keep me down. And I okay. realized many years later, what they were really saying was that you have to find balance in your life and you have to prioritize things and you have to be able to say no when you know that you cannot do something well. And, and I really wish that yeah, I'd listened to the advice when it was first given to me, but I wish I'd known how important that was for, from a communication perspective, because we are pulled in so many directions where everyone's work is, their, is a priority that we don't always know how to prioritize and we end up working really long hours to make everybody happy. And I've realized you never make everybody happy. So you have to figure out what's the priority for the business. You need to have people that are your sponsors that say, yes, you need to focus on this and nothing else. And that becomes your filter for saying no. Yeah, it's it's an art saying no, isn't it? And it's an, it's one we really need to learn. And I often think about the difference between being busy and being effective. And I think, although, you know, the wise people say, well, busyness is a choice. It never feels like that in the middle of a long to-do list. And you think, how many days have I, how many hours have I got left in this day? That's just not enough. And with that cloning machine, I don't know how I'm going to solve this problem. But coming back to what really matters and priorities and what's going to create, I guess, the most value for you, for your organization is so critical, I guess, in all that. Exactly. Yeah. So what book, it doesn't have to be a book, it could be a website, it could be a report, should all comms professionals read? Mm. That's actually a kind of a tough one because it depends on where you are in your career. But I, I think it is important from a comms professional to, to read up on all the industry. Um, articles and publications, you know, like the IABC has the Catalyst, which has really great articles uh, from people all over the world with very different perspectives. And so I think I, that's something I, I know I get the newsletter and I'll click on the articles that interest me. And, you know, so I, I think you have to read up on your craft first. And depending on the industry you're in, I'm sure there are different publications. Like I mentioned, for me, Investopedia is really important because in financial comms, I need that information, right? But I, I think that you definitely industry ones. I think if you're trying to figure things out, I found Simon Sinek's Start With Why really helpful yes. because I read it at a point in my life where I was trying to figure out what my next 10, 15 years look like. And when I read that book, I started applying it to myself, less so to my organization. And I, I found it really helpful to help me understand you know, what makes me happy? What is, what's my why, right? And, um, and, and I think it will really help me clarify what my values are so that I can make more better decisions for me. 
It's interesting. I felt the same with Start With Why. And then recently I read Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, which I should have read 30 years ago, I realise. But here's one of his basic lessons, which is sort of start with the end in mind. Such good advice. Um, and, and and he tells it in a in a quite a sad way, you know. You imagine at your own funeral, and what do you want people to be saying? And and I don't think it needs to be that dark. No. But coming back to why, what's the purpose? What's your personal goal and mission? I think is so helpful. Yeah, just you. But you know something interesting. When I was eighteen, I created a fifteen year path for my life, and oh, I had dear. milestones, wow. and I hit every single milestone, and I reached the end of the fifteen years, and I was like, "What's next?" <laughs> no idea. I can't imagine doing that at that age. That's just very impressive, I have to say. I'm wondering if the, this next question is even relevant because <laughs> is there anything you've not tried? But imagine tomorrow you knew for certain you wouldn't fail. What would you do? If I knew for certain I wouldn't fail? Uh I don't know, actually. I, I I remember when you said that question, I, I've been thinking about it. But to me, failure is just a way to learn. So if I wouldn't fail, I don't know if I would want to do it. Because then it's too perfect. So I don't know. Like, I, I like doing things that I know I could fail at. Because it allows me to learn more about myself. Um, so, yeah. But yeah, I, I just don't know. I know it's a bit of a cop out, but I, I just don't know. No, it's not. It's a clever <laughs> it's a clever twist on the question. If failure is impossible, then all of a sudden it becomes a bit boring and dull. Yeah. I'm I'm <laughs> no challenges. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I like the I like that take on the question. So finally, we give you a billboard for millions yeah. to see. What are you going to put on that billboard? I'm going to put she she lived her life well. Nice. <laughs> Thank you very much, Malia. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, thank you so much, Katie. And so that's a wrap for this episode of the Internal Comms Podcast. Now, listeners have been telling me that they would really value the transcripts for our shows. So I am delighted to say that these are now available. Head over to our website, abcom, abcom.co.uk forward slash podcast, where you can either read them online or you can download them as a PDF. If you are enjoying the show, I would be really grateful if you could show your appreciation by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. This isn't vanity metrics on my part, I promise. It's the way the algorithms work. The more ratings we have, the more discoverable the show becomes for other IC pros out there. So stay tuned or maybe even subscribe because I would hate for you to miss my interview with Sally Sussman, Executive Vice President and Chief Corporate Affairs Officer at Pfizer. Sally is going to tell us what it was like being part of Pfizer's Vaccine Development Task Force and crafting the company's message at such an historic time for the company and, well, let's be frank, humanity in general. Listen out for that one. 
All that remains is to say a special thank you for all of those who reach out to me on LinkedIn, on Twitter, occasionally even in person when we're lucky enough to meet that way. Your feedback is invaluable. It means the world to me and I do try to respond to every comment. So until we meet again, lovely listeners, stay safe and well. And remember, it's what's inside that counts.